Hello, I'm Alan Davis. I'm an architect and heritage lead at BDP. Welcome to the first ever BDP podcast series. It's called Old Buildings, New Beginnings. In this series, we discuss the current thinking relating to the reuse of old and existing buildings. We will discuss topics including adaptive reuse, sustainability, accessibility, improving performance, as well as the cultural significance of keeping old buildings. Why build new when you can repurpose the old? Welcome to the conversation. So hello, this week we discuss in our series, Old Buildings, New Beginnings. Uh, the question, can we make historic buildings inclusive for all? With me uh, to discuss this question, I have some interesting colleagues from BDP. First of all, Jesse Kleimitz is principal and architect in the Toronto studio and the director of Human Space, which is BDP's global inclusive design consultancy. So welcome, Jesse. Thank you. Uh, secondly, we have Christine Davis, conservation architect in, in our Manchester studio. Hello. And David Artis, architect director in our London studio. Uh, thank you all for joining. So I'm going to start by asking you to explain a bit about accessibility, inclusivity and equality. When we think about inclusivity in architecture, we may immediately consider how we address physical barriers to using spaces and how we might improve accessibility. But is this the extent of what we mean by inclusive, accessible and equal? Yeah, so I think, um, and again, just touching on what you've just said there, Alan, um, for me, inclusion is the removal of barriers and they're physical barriers, but they're also perceived barriers because I think everyone's very familiar with the, the concept of step free access and also looking at areas of sort of colour blindness, partial sighted, um, hearing impairments and those kind of physical issues and barriers to being able to enjoy, appreciate and experience our historic landscape. But it's more also about the perceived barriers, about the, the perception that people feel a building is not for them. I mean, particularly with very high profile buildings, um, such as town halls, civic buildings, um, you know, they're buildings that were designed by men, for men, of a, a, a wealthy background, a privileged background. And how do you, in this um, modern age, um, welcome people into those buildings so that they feel engaged, they feel like it's a place that they should be and they should be able to, to participate in the activities that happen there and also enjoy the, the beauty and the, the, the artistry of that architecture, really. Hmm. Jesse, is this something that, that is a current theme in your, uh, in your research? Yes, I, I think just to bridge off Christine's points, I think you know very very similar in that um, what we see as inclusivity in design means realizing outcomes to benefit a greater extent of people and their personal experiences. Inclusive design, in particular, is is an approach that that is used that focuses on on the vast human experience and, and needs of our differences and, and with, with respect to, for example, abilities, gender identity, uh, age, 
race, neurodiversity, culture, socioeconomic status. Uh, these are ways in which um, we can look at and address inclusion within the built environment and the ways in which these needs also intersect. Uh, and it does, it offers an opportunity to problem solve, to innovate, and to explore solutions. So inclusivity in design is, is really about um, process and realized outcomes. David, can I ask you, what, what do you think the problem with historic buildings is? Or the problems with historic buildings are? Why, why is it that we are being challenged in this way by our historic buildings? Well, I guess fundamentally it's a, a kind of the value systems that were in place when these buildings were conceived, built, is very different to the value systems that we have now. And um, as kind of Christine mentioned, it's it's the, the kind of physical and emotional barriers that we have to break down to kind of liberate historic buildings to make them sustainable and enjoyable for everyone today. And that's that's the that's the trick, isn't it? That's that's the the, the skill and and what we, you know, what we relish in in the work that we do, and um, and and in the in the case of uh, Leighton House, what do you think the biggest barriers are there? Well, I mean, are they cultural sort of, or um, well, socio-economic I mean, or? In that they are, yeah. I mean, the the borough is very diverse. The borough. Um, desperately needs spaces where the community feel comfortable going and where the community can enjoy um, you know these very special spaces I think we, you know we often talk of the sort of pedimented museum you know classical architecture you know communicates a certain you know way and you know very simply speaking at Leighton you know the 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 museum was approached by quite a, you know, a grand flight of steps to the front door. You know, clearly, that immediately, you know, sends a particular message. Part of our work is resetting the entry sequence so that there is an equality to another way in, which you know is is as dignified as the is the historic entrance, but can still allow the historic entrance to read as you know the the. The original key entry point, um, and yeah, I, I think the. I mean, one of the key issues with with Leighton was um, being able to introduce a new lift. Now that is, you know, giving the building step free access on all floors for the first time in its in its history, and in a very compact sort of you know domestic scale setting that was perhaps one of the biggest challenges is where you can situate building mass that is not going to undermine the character of the of the original building allow the original building to read and be clearly understood and that was always a big drive for the project you you've picked up on a, a general characteristic of many historic public buildings particularly from the great age of building 
you know, the 19th century period of colonialism. Um, and those buildings tend to be grand and sometimes pompous with, you know, grand steps up to them. Um, and that is both um, problematic from a physical barrier point of view, but also from a psychological aspect. And and for many people, it, it might say keep out rather than come in. It's ex- exclusive rather than inclusive. Is Is that also, Jesse, your experience of public buildings in Canada? Yes, it is. It is. It is similar. You know, Canada celebrating its uh, 155th birthday this year, and I think similarly, uh, we're in Canada dealing with heritage sites um, that are heritage listed, heritage designated. Um, you know, from from different decades and generations, and um, and, and to David's point earlier, uh, many of these buildings were were created in a time when when there were different um, different considerations around the purpose of these buildings and how they're used today, and so I think it it is it is problematic in the way that uh, as we as we move move from today and and forward into the future these buildings are becoming more and more used for everyone's enjoyment and experience, both from landmark locations for tourism, workplace environments, many different purposes for these buildings. And, and it's how do, how do we successfully find ways to preserve their historical integrity while balancing these needs to make them accessible and inclusive to a, a greater number of people? I guess we should, we should then question... Yeah, if if these are such challenging or so, such imperfect buildings by today's standards, why is it important that we uh, that we make them, that we correct them? There will be, I, th- I think, for us particularly, uh, those of us who work with historic buildings, we may take it for granted. We we. Yeah, that that's that's what we are used to dealing with, but there may be others, colleagues, who say, "Well, if if these buildings are so imperfect, if they convey the wrong messages, if they're from a different era, um, what, why is it so important that we make them work?" You know, there, there's many many statistics out there. You know, most recently from the World Health Organization that you know, recognizes the growing um, aging population and more evidence around the the diversity of, of people and statistics from physical, social, or mental health perspectives, uh, whether it be a disability or age-related. There's a lot of evidence out there that um, that is showing how, di- how diverse uh, our global population is and how uh, we're also um, an, a- an aging population. And, and for those, you know, for some of those reasons, I think that the importance of historic buildings are being used in different ways and will be used in, in, different, in, in many in other ways in the future through adaptive reuse um, opportunities or you know, through, through just different uh, occupancy needs. So you know, we're seeing in Canada that the, the federal uh, heritage um, building stock is, you know, from administrative buildings to banks, tourist attractions, retail spaces, um, you know, all all different uh, all different aspects. 
And so it's really a, a, a balance of how, how do we um, create a, a usable and welcoming environment to a greater extent of people while maintaining the, uh, the heritage integrity of these, of these buildings. And, and so you, it's about richness and variety as well as mm-hmm. dealing, being, being capable of dealing with, with all the, the different uh, uh, demographics and the uh, mm-hmm. various uh, types of ability and, uh, and inclination. I get, guess one aspect we haven't touched on, but which is um, a very current topic in the UK is um, uh, contested histories. It's what buildings tell us, what architecture tells us about the past, and whether you know what grand architecture, good architecture, always is allied with good things. You know, a lot of our country houses, a lot of our wealth, uh, a lot of our good buildings are the result of a period of history which also had its dark side. Um, and I think you know, that that is something that uh, we are grappling with in uh, things such as the debate about um, statues, uh, the debate about how the National Trust represents uh, buildings and presents our buildings, uh, and I guess that that also speaks to to the aspect of culture identity. Um, so I'd, I'd just like to investigate uh, again, you know, with that kind of baggage, um, how do we deal with that in the historic environment with historic buildings? Yeah, so I think as you say, it's it's a very challenging topic and. Um, welcomes a kind of a, a broad range of uh, of input from 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 a wide variety of people's backgrounds um but just from a kind of a conservation architect's perspective um obviously when we evaluate um buildings um historic structures uh, we're looking at their heritage values their history their communal and evidential values what do they tell us um about the past experiences which again can inform where we were and where we are now which can actually be could be a, a positive thing if it's sort of directed in the right way and understood and interpreted in the right way but i think one of the the other challenges that people have sort of said perhaps you could take something um and just move it somewhere else put it into a museum but again there's sometimes the significance of the thing that you're analyzing is in what where it's been put and why it is there so again it can be quite challenging to determine a good way to sort of represent these things in a way that they aren't barriers that they don't cause offense and that actually they can be used in in a positive way um, i'm sure david and jesse have some good follow-ups to that <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting it's like what 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 power do we have as architects to to make positive change and how much can our interventions change perceptions undermine preconceived uh ideas that are you know inherent in in fabric Mm. in places in spaces um it is as we've said you know you know time marches on buildings change 
the way buildings are understood changes and we need to do what we can to help institutions reorientate or represent themselves through the work that we do um, and creating physical spaces is a part of that um, as much as you know digital repre uh, representation the way uh, engagement happens more broadly um, and I think it's you know this is our opportunity this is our this is how we can help and how we can support a, a kind of more equitable society and a, an equitable built environment mm. and I think I think there's a, a, a great potential to innovate and a great potential to, to co-create with uh, equity deserving groups um, I, I think through you know through that a process of, of as Christine pointed out uh, conservation planning uh, combined with accessibility and inclusive um, considerations for interventions uh, would 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 help to uh, both mitigate the um, and any detrimental impact to character defining elements and as well uh, be able to um, evaluate these places to support through the lens of inclusion. So I think it is it is a balance and and engaging and bringing uh, others to the design process and getting input from uh, a diverse set of mm. people through that lens can also yeah. create um, opportunities that that may not have been considered previously. And, and I'm guessing, Jesse, that your uh, your methodologies involve. Uh, you mentioned that. Uh, the process earlier on in the mm -hmm. discussion mm -hmm. and i guess mm -hmm. there is a very um detailed and careful stakeholder engagement process that becomes part of the design process in order to capture those particular aspects exactly and i'd say the the heritage for all uh, research project that that we're undertaking um, is is very much about that process of inclusive engagement and co co creation and and coming up with solutions. So it's it's a it's about looking at at it through the lens of inclusion at over forty buildings across the country um, that are representative of the federal uh, heritage um, building portfolio mm. and and looking at it through the lens of mobility cognition through sensory considerations such as seeing or hearing many different aspects to then understand those those barriers and challenges and then work with the heritage community as well to understand those considerations from a conservation point of view and and where the two can come together on the pri mm -hmm. on the, the biggest priority issues to come forward with solutions and recommendations back to the the federal government great I'm, I'm going to, to finish by asking you to do a bit of future gazing. Um, and, and just for reference, I think um, yeah, our generation, my generation in particular, has seen the rise of um, the uh, disabled lobby um, as, as it was 
called uh, in the early days. Um, and the inclusion of uh, requirements for lifts and stairs um, and uh, provisions for people with wheelchair disabilities, which is pretty much the, the, the sort of bottom, you know, the basic aspect of accessibility. But that's, that's yeah, that has grown during the time that I've been an architect from very simple beginnings around 1980s, I guess, late 80s, um, uh, and is very well established now in, in uh, legislation. Um, Jesse, you've referenced demographics, the aging population. Um, so, so I'd like to, um, to to have your opinions of what does the future look like? Well, what do we think will be the landscape in this respect, in terms of access, inclusion, equality for building design for the next generation, for the youngsters who are coming up after us? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'll just maybe take take a stab at, at, at some thoughts around that. I think I think it is about the engagement process and and thought, thoughtful engagement, which I, I think is different uh, in many ways to what's been done in the past, uh, where you know there would have been been guidelines or or um, certain uh, requirements or legislations in place that would have supported some of these considerations and i think moving forwards it's becoming more about um designing with us not for us and and i think that that through that inclusive design process and engagement is a way to move move this um challenge forward to find solutions uh, I, I think that that's gonna that's a big a big part of it and I think that that's just the way the industry is moving, uh, and and what what clients and city uh, policymakers and city builders and and you know that's what that's what they're looking for. So I think that's just one big change. Great. You know we're in a we're in a much better place these days. You know we um, there's more understanding and more knowledge around you know persons of with protected characteristics there are lots there's there are people that you know we work with who are experts in enabling us to understand the the needs and requirements of a of a, of a very diverse um, population um, and as Jesse said you know design is a you know participatory process and the more that we can engage with the the you know the broadest spectrum of users you know, ultimately the, the the better the architecture is we i mean we all want to create spaces that you know we can all you know come together in um the the I mean, we're lucky enough to work on some very prestigious important buildings that are kind of key parts of our cities um key parts of our kind of cultural DNA and I think even now sort of post-pandemic having places that people can come together in you know in 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 real as it were 
you know is becoming you know is is so critical to to our own um you know societies and you know where we where we can move forward yeah and just to sort of uh, agree with uh, david and jesse there i think one of the 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 core principles that BDP is founded upon is collaboration. It's collaboration between professions, but it's collaboration with the public. And I think we pride ourselves on the level of consultation that we um, undertake with um, clients, end users, and the wider public, the communities that these buildings serve. And I think it's just really important that we just meet people's expectations of where they are and what they need. And that can be through tours, talks, interpretations, but also sort of touching on, again, the, the discussion of art and statuary, commissioning new works of art that are representative of uh, the background and, and the lives that, that people are living now and sort of installing those in those places so that people can kind of really take ownership um, of, of enjoying those places and, and knowing that they, they do represent them as, as they are now. Christine, David, Jesse, thank you for discussing inclusion in old buildings with me. Uh, it's always good to have a conversation with interesting colleagues. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Anne.